The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Pray with me. Father, grant us grace now as we dive into your word. Would you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, show us the great hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Would the word of God do the work of God today for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen. If someone were to ask you, what is the most offensive and scandalous aspect of Christianity, what would you say? We modern people might answer that question by pointing to the growing moral conflict between biblical sexuality and our culture. Or we might answer that question by pointing to Christian doctrines like the universal sinfulness of man, the future judgment, or even the authority of Scripture. These are all understandable responses to the question of what is most offensive about Christianity, especially given much resistance to them these days. But if we looked at the book of Acts, I think we would come to a different conclusion. What was so offensive and scandalous to the Jews and the authorities of the Roman Empire? It wasn't ethical issues, and it wasn't abstract doctrines, but it was a person Jesus' claim that he was the eternal Son of God made flesh, who lived a perfect life, died a death for sinners, rose from the dead, and ascended to heaven as the sovereign Lord of the universe was the true scandal. To some, this claim was good news of great joy. But to others, it was threatening news of great offense. Underneath all the different manifestations of resistance to Jesus is a deep offense of his lordship. We see this all the time. Many people still pay lip service to the teachings of Jesus, but as soon as you mention the authority of Jesus, people get quite uncomfortable. Phrases like, love your neighbor and do not judge, are favorites of many. But Jesus' claim that he is the way, the truth, and the life often evokes great discomfort and even outright anger. Jesus himself continues to be the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. So in our text today, we see the scandal of the resurrection on full display through Paul's trial. And this isn't the first time that we've seen this The resurrection put Peter and John in prison in Acts 4. Stephen's claim to have seen the risen Christ was the final straw that got him stoned in Acts 7. The resurrection elicited mocking from the Areopagus in Acts 17. And it caused a dissension to arise between the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Acts 23 last week. And it's the very reason that Paul is on trial in our passage today. So the pattern is the same. We've seen this throughout Acts. 
that the apostles preached Jesus and the resurrection by the power of the Holy Spirit, and then some believe, and others respond with great hostility. So the main point of our text is this. Because of the resurrection, Paul stands on trial to defend his character and the claims of Christ against his challengers. And we'll see this play out in three sections. First, Tertullus accuses Paul in verses 1 through 9. Second, Paul defends himself in verses 10 through 21. And finally, Felix wrestles with Jesus in verses 22 through 27. So let's dive in. Point number one, Tertullus accuses. Look with me at verses 1 through 4. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before their governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. So several high-up Jewish officials come down to Caesarea to bring their case against Paul. And they bring a spokesman named Tertullus. Who was this guy? Tertullus was likely a trained lawyer in the Roman Empire who the Jews hired to present their case. His name suggests a Greek background, so he may not have been a Jew, although we're just not quite sure. Regardless, Tertullus was somewhat of an expert. He knew the ins and outs of the Roman legal system, and that's exactly why the Jews hired him, to give themselves the best chance of winning the case. So in the first half of his statement that we just read, Tertullus shows off his skills by flattering Felix. Tertullus points to his accomplishments as governor, the relative political stability, and the new reforms in Judea. Regardless of the historical accuracy of these claims, Tertullus is taking a risk. He's hoping to appeal to Felix's pride in order to receive a favorable verdict. So Tertullus now brings the charges against Paul. Look with me in verses 5 and 6. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. So Tertullus makes two charges against Paul. First, he accuses Paul of being an enemy of the Romans, and second, of being an enemy of the Jews. So let's look at the first accusation that he's an enemy of the Romans. So Tertullus says Paul is a plague. That's a strong word. Tertullus compares Paul to a deadly virus infecting people everywhere he goes. Paul is like an uncontrolled super spreader for the gospel who's become a public health threat. Furthermore, Tertullus claims that Paul stirs up riots among the Jews. In other words, he's a divisive opponent of the Roman government. He's a threat to civil peace and needs to be dealt with accordingly. 
In his second accusation, Tertullus claims that Paul is an enemy of the Jews. He identifies Paul as a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. In other words, Paul is a figurehead of an unorthodox religious cult. Through this remark, Tertullus not only discredits the growing movement of Nazarene followers, but the man from Nazareth himself, Jesus Christ. Additionally, Tertullus claims that Paul tried to profane the temple. If you remember a few chapters back in Acts 21, 28, some Jews mistakenly thought that Paul was trying to bring one of his Greek friends into the temple. If you remember, an uncircumcised Greek in the temple would have been a huge offense to the Jews. So Paul wasn't just a false teacher of an unorthodox sect, but he was a threat to the religious life of the Jews. So when you hear these two charges, do they remind you of the charges made against someone else? I hope you can hear an echo of Jesus' trial. Wasn't Jesus crucified because he posed a threat to the Romans and the Jews? Jesus was the true king, not Caesar. And he was the divine son of God, which evoked the charge of blasphemy from the Jews. So Paul here in our text is just following in the footsteps of his Savior. Throughout church history, these two charges have been the go-to of the enemies of the church. The claims of Christ are always going to challenge every empire and worldview that they encounter. When you preach the lordship of Christ in our culture— It's possible you might soon be labeled a threat to the state or a blasphemer of secular creeds that dismiss the authority of Christ. If or when that comes, will you be ready? Will you follow in the footsteps of Paul, Jesus, and the saints throughout history? Or will you compromise? endlessly capitulate and then forsake your confession of Christ. In verses 8 and 9, uh, Tertullus finishes his accusation. He says this, By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. Do you hear Tertullus's confidence He somehow thinks that Paul will just confess his guilt to the charges. But notice that Tertullus didn't bring any credible evidence or eyewitness testimony to justify his claims. Paul is going to pick up on that in his response. So point number two, Paul defends. After the accusations, Paul now takes the stand. Notice the contrast. I think Luke wants us to see this. While Tertullus had the support of the high priest and the Jewish elders, Paul is all alone. He doesn't have a spokesman or a lawyer. I'm sure that while he was waiting, he was reminding himself of Jesus' promise from Mark 13, 11, which says this, When they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, But say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, 
but the Holy Spirit. Paul ultimately doesn't need a human spokesman because he has a divine spokesman, the Holy Spirit. So Paul's not actually alone right now. And after receiving a head nod nod from Felix, Paul now begins his defense. So look with me at the second half of verse 10. Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Contrary to Tertullus, Paul doesn't flatter Felix, but respectfully acknowledges his authority as judge. Paul is not anxious here, but he's sincere and he's even cheerful. I love that he just still overflows with joy, even while he's under enormous pressure. I think we can learn something from Paul here. As we engage our neighbors and our coworkers with the gospel, joy in Jesus is a powerful apologetic for the transforming power of Jesus. With all the fear and panic in our world, a deep-rooted gospel joy will speak volumes to people that you encounter. A non-anxious presence will sharply contrast with our culture of outrage. And if your joy and security in Jesus leads you then to humbly overflow with acts of love and words of truth, then people will really be confused with you. Let's now look at the first section of Paul's defense in verses 11 through 13. Look with me there. He says, You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. So Paul straight up denies the charges. If you remember back in Acts twenty-one twenty-seven, it was actually the Jews from Asia who stirred up the crowd, not Paul. So these were just blatant false accusations. Kids, can you remember a time when someone falsely accused you or even spread rumors about you? Tertullus is like the big bad bully in this scene. He is spreading rumors about Paul and lying to hurt his reputation. But notice that Paul doesn't respond by lashing out or fighting back. Rather, he just calm, calmly and joyfully presents the truth and then leaves the rest in God's hands. Kids, when you don't take revenge on your enemies, you respond just like Jesus. Look what Peter said about him. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What if blessing, forgiving, and praying for your enemies was your natural response instead of trying to get even all the time? That could really change the world. Paul continues in verses 14 through 16. And this is really the the centerpiece of his entire defense. He confesses three core ideas. First one is who he worships. Second one is what he believes. And the third one is why it matters. So first, Paul confesses who he worships. Look in verse 14. But this I confess to you, 
that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers. So rather than being a religious charlatan, Paul worships the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Paul is not a cult leader or a rogue preacher, as Tertullus claimed. Rather, his confession corresponds with God's unfolding plan of salvation through Jesus Christ. Paul is a true worshiper of God precisely because he worships according to the way. Second, Paul confesses what he believes. Look in the second half of verse 14. He believes everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Paul did not abandon his trust in the authority of the Old Testament or compromise his integrity to believe in Jesus. All of Paul's writings testify to his belief that the whole Old Testament pointed to and was fulfilled by Jesus. And third, Paul confesses why it matters. Look in verse 15. Paul has a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Do you remember from last week when Paul made a godly commotion by dividing the Pharisees from the Sadducees over the resurrection? Well, Paul is zeroing in now on that resurrection hope. By linking the resurrection with belief in Jesus, Paul is arguing that the hope of the Jews is ultimately invalid unless it centers upon Jesus. And this is why Paul goes on to say in verse 16 that he always takes pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. So simply put, Paul wants to worship God rightly and teach others truthfully. By talking about the internal battle in his conscience, Paul is claiming that he didn't just jump on the Jesus bandwagon or check his mind at the door. Rather, Paul is thoroughly convinced that Jesus alone provides the hope of a future resurrection. So if you're here and you're wrestling with or even straight up dismissive of these claims, we're so glad that you're here. Like Paul, you don't have to check your mind at the door to believe in Jesus. The resurrection wasn't a fairy tale that just helped Paul sleep at night. In fact, he stakes everything on it. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. In other words, if the resurrection didn't happen, we are all wasting our time here. The truthfulness of Christianity hangs on the occurrence of this single event. So might it be that your skepticism is influenced by a biased analysis of the claims? Might it be that other factors have colored your view? If the tomb really is empty, can your life just stay the same way? In verses 17 through 21, Paul further refutes Tertullus's charges. Look with me there. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple, without any crowd 
or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. So don't miss what Paul is doing here. Not only is he defending his conduct, but he's also using the Roman legal system to his advantage. The Roman law required that accusers be present in court proceedings to substantiate a charge, much like our law today. But the alleged eyewitnesses, the Jews from Asia, and we've seen those guys before, they conveniently didn't show up to testify. So Paul is therefore claiming that the trial is fraudulent and unlawful. As one commentator notes, Paul was making a sound technical objection that was sufficient basis for the dismissal of the case. Paul's basic knowledge of Roman law served him quite well here. And although we don't ultimately trust in our rights, having a basic knowledge of them could serve you quite well and could serve to advance the gospel. So Paul ends his defense by summarizing that the resurrection of the dead is the real reason for the trial. The false accusations were just a cover and a misdirection. The risen Lord Jesus was their ultimate problem, not Paul's alleged conduct. So let's now hear the verdict. Point number three, Felix wrestles. So Felix now gives his decision from the bench. Look in verses 22 and 23. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So Felix delays the verdict and keeps Paul in prison. This isn't totally surprising. Even though Paul's arguments, I think, were much more persuasive, I think other factors were at play here. If Paul was just released, the Jewish mobs might cause more unrest and further exacerbate tensions in the region Felix governs. So his decision appears to be quite political. However, he does make some nice accommodations for Paul. If you were in Paul's shoes at this very moment, how would you feel? As we see in verse 27, Paul still had another two years left in prison. That's a fair bit of time. Would you be angry, bitter, or discouraged? When things don't quite go according to your plans, are you quick to adapt, or do you sulk and complain? I don't think Paul would have been shaken one bit by the delay here. And why is that? Well, it's not because Paul was some super-Christian who never sinned or never doubted in God's goodness, but it's because Jesus already assured him that they were going to Rome. Since Paul's future plans were already divinely confirmed, he didn't need to waste even a second 
doubting God's goodness or providence. The same is true for you. If you're connected to Christ by faith, you have a glorious and certain future. God's good providence is not reserved for the people we read about in the Bible, but for anyone who shares the same faith in Jesus. Like Paul, you can walk through life with a humble confidence, no matter what comes, because God sovereignly ordains every single step that you take. So how does Paul use his extra time here in prison? We'll look at verses 24 and 25. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. So Paul stays busy on mission, preaching the gospel to Felix and Drusilla. The longer-than-expected prison sentence was not the end to his ministry, but the start of a new one. I just love this about Paul. He received this seeming setback as a gift of God's mercy to advance God's mission in a new way. Likewise for you, major changes in your life can be God's tailor-made grace to refine your calling and to refocus your ministry. So let's now look at the content of Paul's preaching. He speaks about faith in Christ Jesus. This is kind of the summary of the gospel. And to flesh that out, he reasons about three things. Righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. So what might Paul have said about righteousness? Well, in his letter to the Romans, Paul unpacks this concept in great length. He shares how the perfectly righteous God can justify unrighteous sinners by freely giving them Christ's perfect righteousness. Faith in Christ unlocks a right standing with God and then unleashes a fresh power to live a righteous life. What might Paul have said about self-control? Well, in Galatians, Paul shares that self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Through the new life in the Spirit, Felix and Drusilla didn't need to be slaves of their passions. Paul may have talked about self-control because he knew of their rather public affair. One Jewish historian records that Felix wooed Drusilla away from her husband because she was exceedingly beautiful. Both had committed adultery in their marriages and now were unlawfully married. Without Jesus' help, they would continue to be dominated by their lusts. But if they placed their trust in Jesus and walked in the power of the Holy Spirit, they could find true freedom. So lastly, what might Paul have said about the coming judgment? Well, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says that we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul likely pleaded with them to repent and to find forgiveness through Jesus to escape the coming judgment. Either they would enjoy eternal life with God by sheer grace, or they would perish eternally 
because of their rebellion and their stubbornness. Now we see Felix's response to Paul's preaching. Look at verses 25 and 26. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. So a lot was going on in Felix's heart here. First, notice that the gospel message brought internal distress. Felix was alarmed. Paul's preaching awakened deep fear and anxiety. His conscience was pricked, and his entire worldview was challenged. Second, Felix's alarmed heart caused him to push Paul away. He told him to go away for the present. So don't be startled when the gospel message causes people to avoid you, or push you away, or respond to you with anger. You should totally expect this. And third, Paul's gospel presence evoked contrary desires in Felix. He wanted access to Paul at his own convenience, but he also hoped for a bribe to let Paul out of prison. So after two full years of wrestling with Jesus, it does appear that Felix never surrendered to him. As we see in verse 27, that upon leaving his position as governor, Felix left Paul in prison to do the Jews a favor. Felix's response to the preaching of the gospel reveals something profound about the nature of the human heart. Having a fear of God is a necessary part of genuine conversion, but it is never sufficient. If fearing God is your only orientation towards him, you may not know him yet. One way to identify if this might be you is to examine your anxiety level when you think about God. Do you find anxiety leading you down the path of religious zealous religiosity so that you can push push God's punishment away? Or do you find anxiety leading you down the path of despair? so that you always see yourself as a failure. Felix's problem was that his heart was not melted by the gracious love of Jesus. The cross and resurrection remained as historical claims in his mind, but they were never a sweet, soul-freeing reality to him. Felix was rightfully fearful, but he wasn't compelled by love to surrender his life to the perfectly lovely God. As Alistair Begg once said, you need to be stirred by fear, wooed by compassion, and won by love. Has fear stirred you? Has Christ's compassion wooed you? Have you been won by Jesus' love? Is Christ's perfect life death for sinners, and resurrection, your only hope in this life and the next? Or are you still trusting in your wealth portfolio, the midterm elections, 
a lasting relationship, your vaccination status, or some future workplace opportunity. Felix is a prime example of someone who was around solid teaching for a while, but never got off the fence. Is that you? Where are you straddling the fence with Jesus? Felix also liked being around Paul when it was convenient to him, but he fled the minute he was challenged or confronted. Is that you? Where has pride fueled a secrecy or caused you to avoid accountability? Where has the love of convenience and comfort kept you from diving into meaningful Christian community? If you've been pricked by any one of these questions, don't run away. Don't suppress what God wants to do in this moment. Just simply repent and simply surrender your life to Jesus. Allow his love, his perfect love, to overcome your love of self and your love for the world. So as you go from here, settle in your mind whether the resurrection of Christ is your true hope. To some, like Tertullus, the Jews, and Felix, the resurrection was a great offense. But to others, like Paul, and like many of you, the resurrection was the great victory. As Jesus said, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Would you all, by grace, enjoy the freedom and the sweetness of that blessing? Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Do ask now that you would apply these truths to our hearts and that you would bring about genuine transformation. So, Lord, renew our minds for the glory of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.